This week in KMA Land, Page County resident sounds off again on road repairs. Montgomery County Pipeline Ordinance still on hold. Red Oak Council members hear fiber optics report. Page County COVID numbers decline after school starts surge. And SHS principal talks more about activities rejuvenation. I'm Mike Peterson. Repairs to a Page County road are still a point of contention between residents and officials alike. At its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors continued discussion over the repaving of O Avenue, or County Road M63, contracted by Henningsen Construction of Atlantic. The project is estimated at more than $3.2 million. During his weekly update, County Engineer J.D. King informed the board that Henningsen will search for a solution, which he says is likely to be a patch job over the new pavement of the Page-Montgomery County line. However, local resident Tom Wagoner expressed concerns over the plan sent by King earlier in the week, saying it lacked information. I see some points on graph paper. I don't see a, a profile. And, what you're just going to give that to somebody and say this is how I want it placed. And another thing would be interesting, and I can do that this afternoon, that proposal of yours crosses the county line. That pavement increases in elevation. Wagoner adds King has also not accounted for as much as a seven-inch difference in the current transition to the county line compared to the approved plan which he measured himself and previously presented to the board. He added the patch job would still cause the end of project to differ from the originally approved plan. Supervisor Jacob Holmes also expressed disappointment that Henningsen had not yet been contacted about possibly redoing the portion of the road after the board had informally agreed to ensure the project was fixed correctly. Yes, yesterday, and I, have you contacted Henningsen and told them they did not follow the plan or those details? needs to be fixed and said yes so you have not yet i'm afraid they're going to show up here and there too and do it wrong so i'm afraid of this is unacceptable for me it needs to be fixed like it says they did not follow the plan both Holmes and Wagner expressed frustrations about why this issue wasn't addressed sooner as Wagner's communication with the board and King regarding the matters dates back to May of this year. Wagner also requested a motion on the agenda to ensure the project is repaired per the plan. For the supervisors to instruct the engineer to fix that in the project, do it per plan detail as far as what happened on that cold in place, the width, that's water under the bridge that uh, unfortunately has happened. You do have the opportunity and I think you have the obligation. However, no formal action was taken by the board Tuesday morning. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong believes it's time for the county to take the next step of the process and meet with Henningsen to get a plan set in stone to fix the issue. Armstrong also instructed King to provide an update in the correspondence with Henningsen at the board's regular meeting next week. Montgomery County officials are still contemplating regulations for carbon pipeline projects. Earlier this month, the county's Board of Supervisors approved a resolution to enlist the Allers and Cooney law firm to guide the county through matters dealing with Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express CO2 pipeline. That's despite the county's Planning and Zoning Board's vote to send the proposed pipeline ordinance to the supervisors. During Tuesday morning's regular meeting, Supervisor Randy Cooper relayed a recent discussion with the Potawatomi county official who indicated his county declined to develop a pipeline ordinance claiming the 
Iowa Utilities Board has the ultimate authority over pipeline permits. Cooper questioned the wisdom of taking on the IUB in litigation. I think ordinance is still good because I think it'll give you, let's say you was a landowner, it'll give you some ammunition to negotiate with the pipeline. For example, the Johnsons that didn't want a 288, it'll give them some power to work with. But if it comes down to court and IUB says, well, you can do this, those ordinances aren't going to hold up. Supervisor Charles Schmidt, however, expressed concerns over the future of the county's land if the board fails to enact pipeline regulations. We do an ordinance and then you have IUB come back. I mean, it's, it just feels like we've gone through the whole process to do an ordinance and then they just basically step on us like an ant. I think about, okay, so this is one thing. This is one pipeline. So what about the future of our land in Montgomery County? Meanwhile, a planning and zoning commission member raised concerns about Summit's possible involvement in developing an ordinance. Vicki Rossander of Stanton alleged commission members received an email indicating the county zoning administrator recently met with summit officials to discuss the legal enforceability of any ordinance. She called such matters confounding. It is baffling to me as why we would sit down with one of the entities we are trying to regulate so they can seem to dictate to us how to write or change our ordinance. We did not sit down with Mid-America when we wrote the recently passed solar ordinance, and I seriously doubt we will sit down with Mid-America when we update the wind ordinance in the future. While not wanting to discredit the two local providers who offer good services to the surrounding area, Orem says it's been frustrating to see other communities receive fiber-to-the-home projects without that significant financial burden on the city or its taxpayers. Richard Conger is Director of Area Operations in Iowa for Mediacom. Conger says upgrading to a fiber-to-the-home network with the existing infrastructure would cost 3 to $5 million. Now, that price has gone up a lot since I probably looked at it two years ago, and it'll probably go up a lot in two more years because the government is handing out money to all of these companies that are building it. So it's near impossible to find a contractor that's willing to do it for cheaper whenever you can't find a contractor anyway. That'll do the work. FMTC CEO Kevin Cabbage says the service already in the area was a critical factor in why their proposed Reconnect 3 project through the U.S. Department of Agriculture wasn't awarded any federal dollars. So while they still plan to bring fiber to Red Oak residents, he says it'll likely be a much slower process as they work back through the transport lines they've already installed. So our plans in 2023 is to go back along the fiber routes that's already constructed. Uh, there's spare interducts in there. We'll pull in distribution fibers, and then we'll start hooking those homes up in 2023, and then look at other areas where we can expand our fiber construction, but it'd have to be in phases because we have to do it as we're able to afford it. Orem says his committee is urging the city to hold the local providers accountable for finding ways to adjust their business models to their best abilities to provide what he says is a necessity should the town want to attract younger residents, referencing at least one possible housing development. Neither Cabbage nor Conger gave hard dates on when a fiber-to-the-home project would begin. However, Cabbage says realistically, without federal funding, it would be at least another five years before they could likely serve the entire community with fiber. Recent data indicates Page County has weathered an uptick in COVID-19 case numbers. According to the Iowa Department of Public Health's COVID dashboard, roughly 10 new cases have been reported in the county over the past seven days. That's down from 40 new cases reported in a seven-day span one month ago. Page County Public Health Administrator Richard Mullen tells KMA News COVID numbers spiked at the beginning of the new school year 
but have waned since. I think that we got through that initial starting of school and people attending more sporting events and things like that, and now, you know, people are, you know, getting through that, that initial wave of COVID that hit us early on um, when school started, and then now, that we're, you know, rolling into holidays, it'll be interesting to see if... Um, if those COVID rates um, increase, um, you know, coming into the holiday season. In terms of vaccinations, Mullen says 57% of the county's population ages 12 and up are fully vaccinated. That's as of Monday. While almost 63% of residents 18 and older are vaccinated. More than 84% of residents 65 and older are vaccinated. While 59% have had at least one booster shot. While saying those numbers are good, Mullen says there's room for improvement. Obviously, we would like to see that increase a little bit more. You know, and that comes down to that personal choice of of the parents um, wanting to receive that vaccination. And then the opportunity to have children vaccinated is well represented in the area with Page County. And I can say that the last two COVID clinics that we had, we had about 156 individuals attend those last two uh, clinics that we had. So that was a really good turnout for that bivalent booster. Bowman says his office now has ample supplies of Moderna's bivalent booster to administer to residents 18 and older at the next COVID vaccine clinic. Early on, we were getting um, pretty inconsistent vaccine um, allocations to us, but that quickly opened back up and we were able to get a lot of Moderna to now where we can serve 18 years and up at this point in time. Like I said, people can just call in and, and, and receive that. And it's a one-time boost for the bivalent at this time, which we don't know if that's going to be a yearly recommendation or what. But for right now, everybody is eligible for an additional bivalent booster, especially if they've already had their two boosters. Page County Public Health's next COVID vaccine clinics are October 27th and November 15th and 29th at the County Public Health Office in Clarinda. Call 712-850-1212 to make an appointment. Planning for a major revamping of the Shenandoah School District's activities continues. Recently, Shenandoah High School Principal Andrew Christensen announced a concerted effort to reach, revamp, and reconnect the district's extracurricular programs involving not only students but also parents, guardians, and the community in general. The announcement follows the suspension of Shenandoah High School's varsity football season earlier this month due to a lack of players. In an interview with KMA News this week, Christensen says the announcement at last Monday's school board meeting garnered a great response from the public. The community has been very supportive. I've had numerous people reach out and ask how they can help some that want to get involved into youth coaching and some just curious how they can help with different fundraising and things of that nature. And so I think it's created some positive buzz, which is great for our school and our community and um, everything that we want to accomplish here at Shenandoah. And so so far, so good. However, Christensen stresses the revamping effort encompasses the district's other activities as well. This also reaches out to building with FFA, with band, with music, with art, with extracurricular activities, and everything that we do here at Shenandoah. And so I really want the community to know that this is not a general plan to improve athletics. Again, that is a big part of this, but this is a plan to enhance and improve and make Shenandoah schools the best we possibly can for our students, our staff, and everybody else involved. Christensen says part of the process involves the alignment of programs throughout the district. How does high school band align with junior high into the youth, and what are we doing within the community um, to enhance those programs? Um, what are we doing with music and how we align top-down FSA and how do we get uh, junior high more involved and how do we bring programs in into Miss Martin's program who does an absolutely amazing job with what she does and 
we can do that, obviously, like we talked about, the youth alignment with athletics. In addition, Christensen says rubrics or specific expectations must be established for each program. Educationally, we have a lot of rubrics um, built in our classrooms. That goes from high school, junior high, all the way up to the college ranks. There's a rubric, there's a specific pro- uh, progression plan that you have to have in place to be successful in that class, essentially. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be building rubrics for all of our extracurricular programs as well. Then there's the matter of buy-in for both students and parents. Christensen's plan is based on eight pillars of success, including building relationships and instilling love and passion. Christensen says building relationships is important in order to increase student participation. As high school coaches, as junior high coaches, the more we can get involved with the youth and the more we can build relationships at that youth level, you see a trend that more students typically come out and more students participate um, at a higher number and a higher percentage. And so one thing that we can do with this youth, youth alignment and coaching coaches is to get involved and offer more to our youth from the high school perspective and build those relationships at a young age. Christensen says it's important to maintain those relationships as students advance into the upper grade. Those students know who we are. They know our expectations. They have a positive relationship with us. And at some point as they transition through, knowing that they already have the expectations of our programs, knowing that they already have the relationships built, a lot of times we see an enhanced growth in numbers and participation. Building connections and trust with parents and guardians is another key pillar to revamping activities. For some reason, I believe that that's not just a Shenandoah issue. That's an issue in our society today that we as schools need to continue to focus on, and we need to put more focus in that area so that we can build that connection and trust. Christensen believes increased parental support will help prevent the exodus of students from athletic or other extracurricular activities. Dates for community meetings and associations with the activities revamp effort are expected to be announced in the near future. Slow but effective. That's how a Floridian with KMA Land Ties describes the continuing recovery from Hurricane Ian. Former Shenandoah resident Rob Nestor and his wife Dev live on Manasota Key in Inglewood, Florida, one of the hardest hit areas from the Category 4 hurricane that ransacked a good portion of southern and central Florida late last month. Nestor told KMA News cleanup and repair work remains a slow process, mainly because of what he calls incredible damage. However, he says volunteer efforts remain strong in the community located between Sarasota and Fort Myers. We stopped in Walmart yesterday and they were serving hot meals to anyone coming up the doors. Tide has brought in a huge trailer. You can bring up two loads of laundry. They'll clean your clothes for you, bag it up and have it ready for you in a few hours. Nestor says contractors from all over the country are streaming in to help with rebuilding efforts. We see people from uh, Vermont, Michigan, Kansas City, Contractors from Colorado, all around, anybody from pool service companies, a lot of debris or like trees, you know, everyone is just piling all this stuff up in their front yards. And they just go by neighborhood by neighborhood coming along with these trucks to clean up the, the tree debris. And uh, I assume next will probably be the landfill debris, you know, everybody's stacking damaged furniture and so forth by the curb. Nestor says most utilities have been restored in the area, but he adds it'll be months before life in Inglewood and the surrounding communities returns to normal because of the damage extent. It's going to be a long time before we get back to status quo being normal. I think as far as the attitude and... People, you know, just trying to get back into the ribbon of the things, opening up the restaurants, doing the shopping, doing that. You know, the spirit is there. 
but the visual aspects of things, it, it's just going to take a long time. Nestor adds he appreciates the support extended from KMA Land residents through the social media during and after the ordeal. 2022 has been another landmark year for the Shenandoah Golf Course. That's according to Course Superintendent Craig Connell, who tells KMA News the number of memberships has jumped greatly since the city took over the course from 152 in 2020 to 205 in 2022. In February 2020, the city entered into a lease agreement with the American Legion Country Club and War Memorial Trust for the golf course and pro shops operations. Shenandoah City Council members approved the course's ownership transfer from the War Memorial Trust to the city in May 2021. Cottle says the past year saw a lot of traffic from members and non-members. Our cart rentals are up. Greens, greens play is up. Uh, just a lot of traffic through the door. Young kids, I mean, all, all ages. Uh, we did host 38 events this year. Uh, hosted sectional district uh, golf, high school golf. He adds the course also hosted some new tournaments this year, including Kawasaki and Helena corporate outings and the two-day State Eagles tournament, which he says is the first time the city has ever hosted the event. Connell says a lot of focus the past two years has been on year-round efforts to improve the golf course quality. Just controlling weeds. We've started airifying, you know, spring spring and fall airification, um, kind of get, get greens in, in good shape. We got a new central control irrigation system. Uh, kind of an updated irrigation system installed this year, which which definitely helps course conditions, especially as, as dry as it's been the last three years. However, Connell says he, along with City Administrator A.J. Lyman and Parks and Recreation Director Kevin Olson, are continuing to look for future improvements. we got some cart sheds that, that need new doors, um, just kind of some fixing up, you know, the, the, the building in general. That's going to be a constant deal. You know, we kind of need to do some renovations to the pro shop, and then the, the course itself is just kind of ongoing. While temperatures are expected to get into the upper 70s this weekend, Connell says typical fall season work is already underway on the course. Significant state funding to the tune of a $200,000 grant is on its way to a Glenwood Recreation Project. The Glenwood Trails Project, a nearly three-mile portion and trailhead of the larger Mills County Trail Initiative, is one of eight recipients across the state through the Iowa Department of Transportation's Recreational Trails Project, receiving a combined $2.7 million. Mills County Trails Board Executive Committee President Sean Kaler tells KMA News it's taken several applications to obtain the coveted grant and is a significant financial boost to the $1.2 million already raised, particularly given the uncertainty in the trail building market. Inflation is a big problem for trail and recreational development, but at the same time we can build some concessions in place. This, this trail originally had, uh, for example, four new bridges budgeted, had, a, had some extra pieces and parts to it, such as lighting and things that we've had to sacrifice, but the, the critical component is we get constructing this trail as fast as possible to help with the safety and accessibility and recreational needs of the community. Kohler says the Glenwood project is awaiting one last approval from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources regarding the tributary crossing. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend.
This has been a presentation of KMA News.